0: Good morning. We are going to be once again in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. If, uh, if you have one of the blue Bibles in the chair in front of you, the bookmark should be there, unless um, one of the little ones moved it. But it should be in 2 Corinthians 5. And while you're heading over in that direction, uh, you can see that Pastor Mike is gone still. So uh, he's still on vacation with his family. If you would please. Pray for them, pray that they have a restful trip, a refreshing time together, and if you do need to talk to a pastor this week, uh, feel free to call our church office, and we can put you in touch with one of our pastors or elders, or there's always, if you notice in your bulletin, there's always a pastor of the week at the bottom. So it's me or Randy, uh, feel free to reach out to one of us if you need anything this week. Well, uh, if you are over to 2 Corinthians, we're going to be in chapter 5, looking at verse 21. And when you're over there, if you would stand with me if you're able, we are going to read 2 Corinthians 5 and just verse 21. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, God's word says, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And Father, we come before you in the name of your Son. We come before you uh, asking that you would make your word clear and understandable and exciting and that it would change us, that it would change our hearts, and that it would cause us to worship and exalt you. Uh, Lord, you know that I need help, and so I pray that you would strengthen me, that you would make uh, my words clear so that uh, the believers here would be strengthened and encouraged and built up, and that those who... Don't know you and who reject you, that they uh, would come to saving faith, Lord. Uh, We know that your word is powerful and that it works, and so uh, we pray that it would do its work in us today. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, we are. for the second week in second corinthians chapter five and with pastor mike we've been going through the gospel in romans and basically taking the diamond that is the gospel and turning it and looking at all the different facets of the gospel and seeing all of the beautiful sides of the gospel, and what we get to do today, once again, is look at this one verse where the gospel has basically been simmered down, boiled down, you get it in its very essence, and Paul has said it in one verse, and so we get to look at the gospel in this one verse, and as we mentioned last week, we talked about the characters involved in salvation last week, and this week we're gonna be talking about what actually happened on the cross. What was the interaction between those characters on the cross? And we have to realize, at the cross, it is the moment that defines all of history. The moment when God sends forth the King of Kings and the Lord of Glory to be mocked and spit upon and murdered by the ones that that he created and held together while they crucified him. It's the moment when God used sin to conquer sin and defeated death with death. It's the moment when God's love and justice and all of his attributes come to their pinnacle and meet perfectly. It's the moment that splits humanity in two. Those who trust in Christ and who bow their knee before him and will know him and have eternal joy with him forever and those who reject him and will suffer eternal punishment in hell forever. And so, if you remember last week we asked, why would believers need to hear the gospel again? Why would we need to rehearse the gospel over and over again? And we talked about all these different uh, reasons That it, it humbles us It reminds us of the hope that we have It reminds us of who God is And that he's the center of the universe And that we are not It reorients us towards reality But we said that the most important thing That we wanted to think about Is that when we have as believers When we have the gospel And all of its truths Imprinted on our mind And saturating our hearts We are able to process life circumstances We're able to have a worldview and a lens through which to think about things that happen. If you remember, we mentioned that quote from the British pastor, Martin Lloyd-Jones, that he said, have you ever realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? And the gospel gives us those truths to tell ourselves in the moment when we feel depressed and numb and bitter or angry or whatever it might be. Last night when we got to be with the Pence family, some of our pastors and elders, what, we were, what was being said around Shelley's bedside and what was being sung and what was giving hope and what made that room not a room about despair but of joy was these truths of the gospel of hope in heaven, of hope that Christ will return and restore this earth, make it what it always should be, of hope that we know for sure that he has paid for our sins. The gospel is the north star that reorients us. It's the sure and steadfast anchor that holds to us when life is beating us to pieces. And so when you can't catch a break at work, when you have that nagging health problem that keeps getting worse and worse when you're depressed when you're anxious when you're tempted to to spew out bitter words at your spouse these are the truths that we need to rehearse and remind ourselves if we are believers and if you do not know the lord if you do not trust in christ these are the truths that you must believe so what we did last week is we looked at the characters of the gospel do you remember what they were he him us third hour is supposed to be the loudest everybody else was louder he him and us yeah he him and us and we said that the he in this verse is god the father the him in this verse is jesus the son and the us is obviously us and we talked about how the father is good and righteous and holy and perfect and majestic and we talked about all of his attributes and we talked about how his role in salvation is the initiator. When we were running from him and fighting against him, he pursued us with his goodness and his mercy. He's not standing back here saying, well, i got to fix your problem now that you messed it up. No, he is running after us and pursuing the, initi- he's the initiator in salvation. We talked about how Jesus as the son, his unique role is savior, that he rescues us, that he is both God and man, his savior, and he is Lord of this universe, that there's not a speck of dust in the farthest reach of the universe, that he does not rule and claim, and all of creation says yes and amen. And we talked about ourselves and what the Bible says about us, and we took that hard look that... We don't add anything to salvation. We don't bring anything good in ourselves. The Bible doesn't describe us as having anything to offer towards our salvation, to make God love us or have anything special about us. I didn't deserve it, you didn't deserve it, but God puts his love on display. He is the type of God who loves the unlovable, who pursues those who are running from him with his love. And we talked about our position apart from Christ. Apart from Christ, the Bible says that we are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, naked, without God and without hope in the world. And we talked about sin and what the nature of sin is that Remember the dam analogy, that if there is just a small trickle of water coming from that dam, it looks like no big deal, but there is millions of gallons of water that want to rip out of that dam. And in the same way, our smallest sins, that anger, that irritation, that, that is just hatred in its infant form. And it would become murder if it could become full grown. That lust would become adultery if it could. That pride would kill God and make ourselves God if it could. And we talked about how the man on death row and the nice suburban housewife who serves in the soup kitchen, if they both reject Christ, they both stand guilty. I was at, um, was at my mom's this week and on TV, they had this thing about LeBron James uh, doing a school for at-risk youth. And um, it's, a, it's a good thing for someone else. But why in God's eyes does that not add an ounce of merit to his salvation? Well, Isaiah 53 says, because all have turned to their own way, all have rejected God's authority and said, no, I will have my right to choose, I will have my way, I am God and all else will serve me. It might be a good thing to do, but you're doing it because it seems right in your eyes, not because you submit to the sovereign of the universe as your king. And so that's the nature of sin and Today, as we come back into 2 Corinthians, we're gonna talk about the interaction that goes on between these different characters on the cross. And in 2 Corinthians, Paul's talking about the ministry he's been given of reconciliation, that the world and God are enemies, They are at war with one another, but we as Christians have the message of how those two can be reconciled, made friends again in Jesus, by Jesus. And that is the message that we still have today. And Paul, as he's talking about his ministry, then comes to this 21st verse and sums up the gospel in one one line, one verse. And today we get to the heart of what makes the gospel, the gospel, what makes it good news, what makes Christianity, true Christianity, different from all other false worldviews. And so the three things going on at the cross are, don't be scared off by these words, we're going to walk through them, substitution, atonement, and justification. Justification substitution, atonement, and justification. That's what Paul is emphasizing in what happens on the cross, and that's what we're going to look at today. So, first, look down at the verse, at verse 21, and look at those first three words. For our sake. For our sake. These three words are are the best words possible. These three words are the hinge that our salvation turns on because we should have been there and yet someone else stood in our place. God, God kind of sets this pattern of this, starting in the Old Testament. Do you remember the Exodus? God has his people, he says, you can kill a, a perfect unblemished lamb and what are they supposed to do? Put the blood on the doorpost and the angel of death is going to pass over the house. And then again, it comes up in the day of atonement, the most important day in the Jewish calendar, and God says that there's this scapegoat, and the high priest, it says, shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel, their transgressions and their sins, and he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of the man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area, and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness." This symbolism that that someone can stand in the place of another, that a perfect sacrifice can stand in the place of another. And it gets fleshed out even more in the Old Testament. God gives his people uh, for specific, very serious sins that affect the whole community, God commands that they would hang the person uh, on a tree and it says, cursed, you might remember this phrase, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And the prophets pick this up in Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53, and they say, there will be a king that comes one day who will hang on a tree and be able to bear the final curse of God and take it away from his people. And that is exactly what Paul says in Galatians 3. He says, Christ redeemed us, bought us back from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Christ is that final, ultimate king who can bear the curse of God to rescue his people. And so we need to stop and think about these three words. Everything we're going to talk about the rest of this morning hinges on these three words. It splits the whole world in two. For those who trust in Christ and follow him and worship him, that for our sake includes you. And means that everything that Christ purchased and bought and did on the cross applies to you. For those who reject Jesus, it excludes. And that for our sake does not include you. But it can if you would only trust in him. And the thing is, there's only two options. There's only two options. Because God is a good fair, equitable, just God who does not wink at sin. He does not tell Hitler, no big deal, don't worry about it. He doesn't sweep it under the rug. There will be no injustice in the end. All sin will be paid for in the end. When someone cut you off on the freeway, when they laughed at you as a kid, when when you lied to your parents and no one knew about it, no sin will, will end up unpaid for in the end. It will either be paid for on the cross by Christ or it will be paid for by But you, if you reject him in hell, there will be no injustice in the end. And so that for our sake splits humanity in half. And think about how amazing this is that he stands in our place. Imagine a great crushing weight is about to fall on you. And you know that it's right and it's good and it's how it should be. And it's racing towards you. There's no escape. And someone comes in and absorbs it in your place. You stand in in court guilty, you can't pay, the fine is massive, your family is going to be, uh, no future for your kids, no house, and someone steps in and says, I will pay your penalty, I will buy you a house, I will put your kids through school. But the best example I've heard so far is a friend of mine who, uh, he had five kids, and he's leaving for work one day, and he takes these them and he says, you know, I want you to obey your mom, I want you to, you know, do your math homework today or whatever. Something different for each kid. And if you are obedient to your mother, when I get home, we'll have a special dessert. She's going to make a special dessert, which I'm learning with my one-year-old not to promise those types of things. But that's what he did. Uh, and so he, the, he comes home from work, and the wife gives him the look like, it's been a long day. Please go deal with your children. And uh, he goes in, and he actually said he set up a little piano bench and put on a little fake judge's robe and brings the kids in and he says, okay, well, did you obey your mom? No, he looks at the mom, nope, they didn't. One by one goes through. And so he says, well, the, you know, we agreed that you wouldn't have dessert if, if you didn't obey your, your mom today. So they all eat dinner and the kids are sad. And at the end of dinner, mom brings out, you know, a big slice of cake and puts it in front of the dad. And then the dad turns to her and says, cut my cake into five pieces. Give it to each of the kids, and I won't have any. And all the kids are crying, no, we disobeyed. You you have it, Dad. And that's a, a silly example, but that is a perfect example of Christ standing in our place. It should have fallen on me. The punishment, the wrath should have fallen on me, and yet he stood in our place. He was our substitute. He was our substitute. That's what substitution means. And... Before we move on to this atonement idea, think about this. This is maybe the best part of it all. He didn't have to. God is under no obligation to save anyone. And he would have been just as gracious and merciful and loving. God never does anything because he has to. But he is the type of God who overflows in love to save those who are running from him. That's the type of God that we serve, who pursues those who are running away from him, who when there is no obligation and nothing in the the object of his love to earn his love, he still loves nonetheless. He overflows in love and mercy and joy and kindness. So substitution, the next thing we're gonna look at is atonement, atonement. Look at this next phrase. So we have, for our sake, he made him to be sin. He made him to be sin. We're asking what happened on the cross? Atonement. What atonement means is a payment that satisfies justice. In this case, a payment for sin that satisfies God's justice. So maybe you ask, if if you're a Christian, you've read this verse before, if you've thought about it, maybe you've wondered, what does this actually mean? Does, Does Jesus become sinful on the cross? Does he become a sinner? Does he stop being God? Does does the relationship within the Trinity between the Father and the Son break? What's going on here? No, Jesus doesn't become sinful on the cross. No, he doesn't become a sinner on the cross. No, he doesn't stop being perfectly just, pure, holy, good. He doesn't cease being God. The Father never stops loving him as his Son. The Trinity does not break. And yet... What this verse means is that every single sin of every single believer is counted towards Jesus on the cross as if he committed it. God treated Jesus on the cross as if he were you or me, as if the punishment that we deserved goes onto him. Think Think about the scope of this. Every believer of all time, the Bible says that Abel is the first stated believer in the Bible, Abel, all, all of the evil thoughts, all of the evil attitudes, all of the evil things that he did, every single one, Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Joshua, Samuel, David, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Nehemiah, and every other Old Testament believer who was looking forward to the coming Savior and Messiah and putting their trust in him, all of their sins. And then think about all those contemporary with Christ who would trust in him, the disciples, Jesus saw them sin and knew I'm going to the cross for that. Maybe even some of the Romans that were beating him that he knew would one day come to trust in him, I'm going for that. Think about all the sin of those who trusted in him from the time of his resurrection until today. The Roman em- period of the Roman Empire, the Renaissance, the Reformation, I skipped the Middle Ages, the American Revolution, modern history, and all other periods that I've completely skipped out on all of the sin of all those who would trust in him from all continents. And then, all those that, we don't know when he's coming back, all those in the future that will trust in him. Sins that haven't even been committed yet by his children. What the Bible says is that on the cross, all of the right, good, just, perfectly equitable fury of god is is unleashed upon him on the cross where we should have stood and he takes it for us and he bears it and he's able to stand up under it because he is god and he is man think about okay so we kind of get this abstract idea oh the wrath of god what does, it, what does it mean? What does the Bible say about how God actually thinks and acts towards sin? Well, in Noah's day, it was sin that led God to drown out the life, breath of life in every living creature except eight people and animals on the ark. Psalm, Isaiah 63 talks about God's people, and it says, They grieved his Holy Spirit, therefore he turned himself to become their enemy. He fought against them. Psalm 11 says, The Lord tests the righteous and the wicked, and the one who loves violence his soul hates. Psalm 5.5, the boastful shall not stand before your eyes, you hate all who do iniquity. Think about, do you remember Nadab and Abihu when they offered a sacrifice that God hadn't called for, and fire comes out and consumes them. Or in the New Testament, Ananias and Sapphira, they lie to the Holy Spirit and are struck dead. Or, we don't think complaining is a very big deal, but, but God does. It says that when the Israelites complained in the wilderness, the Lord heard them his anger was roused then the lord then fire from the lord burned among them and consumed some of the outskirts of the camp and he says to moses leave me alone that i may destroy them and blot out their name from under heaven and this one i think is the most terrifying this talks about when jesus returns to deal with sin on the earth in revelation 6 the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free Hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? That's what Jesus bore on the cross for you if you trust in him, so that there is not one ounce of anger left for you to face, not one ounce of wrath left for you to face. You can have direct access to the Father. You can have peace with Him, love for Him. A great analogy of this, uh, the NASA shuttle program, when the shuttle would re-enter the atmosphere, there's this big shield on the front with these massive heat bricks, and they call it the propitiatory shield. and that shield as the shuttle re-enters the atmosphere, its whole purpose is to absorb the heat generated as it enters the atmosphere and be a shield between the astronauts and that heat. And those bricks absorb all of that heat and dissipate it off so that the astronauts are able to stay safe. And in the exact same way Jesus on that cross is able to bear and absorb all of the wrath of God that should have fallen on us. And he is able in three hours on the cross to bear more punishment than any individual sinner ever will in hell. And you think about this. Think about this. When, when Jesus is in the garden, do you remember this? And he says, Father, let this, let this what pass from me? What? You wonder what's, what's in the cup? What's terrifying Jesus so much? He's terrified in the garden. It's not the nails and it's not the cross and it's not the physical suffering. Martyrs for years have gone singing to their death. The the apostles, it says in Acts, rejoice to be counted worthy to suffer for the name. Peter tradition says he asked to be crucified upside down because he didn't feel worthy to be crucified in the same way as Jesus. There's a man, Hugh Latimer, who said, Christ is the head of the church, not the Pope. And the Queen of England said that he should be burned for that. And as he's being burned, he turns to his friend and says, Be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as shall never be put out. When the Moravian missionaries were were going overseas, they would send these missionaries out to almost certain death. And their cry from the ship, their motto became, May the Lamb that was slain receive the full reward of his sufferings. And as a side note, I, I pray that there would be young people and old people in this congregation whose, whose heart cry is, may the lamb receive the full reward of his sufferings, and that we would go to the ends of the earth for the sake of the gospel. And so Jesus is not afraid of the nails or the beatings or the physical death. He is terrified because that wave of righteous wrath is going to fall on him compressed into three hours and he is the kind of man, the kind of God man that can swallow it and bear it and not buckle under it. And say at the end, do you remember what he says? It is finished. That was a business term that we have found examples of it stamped on receipts in the Greco-Roman world. What's he saying? Paid in full, done, I've purchased them, I've bought my people, I've paid it, I've drained that cup to the last drop, and no wrath remains for them to face. And now, think about these verses, Psalm 103. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Micah 7, he will vanquish our iniquities. He will cast our sins into the depths of the sea. Hebrews eight twelve: I will forgive their iniquities and will remember their sins no more. Isaiah 43, 25, I, yes I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and remembers your sin no more. If you've done laundry and you've gotten a stain out before, you, you know one how hard that is and you know two, when it's gone, it's gone. It's gone. It's completely gone. His sacrifice was complete. It was final. Hebrews tells us that he did not offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. There is no other hero There is no other one in the universe worthy of worship. He bore the wrath we deserved and he was the only one that's ever existed that didn't deserve to bear any of it. That's why we call him King of Kings. That's why we call him Lord of Lords. That's why we worship him. Think about his courage and his love and his majesty and his goodness, mercy. Okay, substitution, atonement. Last one, justification, justification. We, we see here, for our sake he made him to be, no si- to be sin, who knew no sin. Jesus was sinless, never one ounce of uh, evil thought or an evil action. And not just that he, he didn't do the things the law said not to do, he filled it up all the way. He loved the Father with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength for every second of his life. He loved his neighbor, neighbor as himself every second of his life perfectly. He knew no sin. And look at this next phrase, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. There's this incredible transaction going on, and we've just touched on half of it so far. And this is going to be the second half. This is the picture, that we have filthy, sin-laden rags on us. And for those who trust in Christ, on the cross those rags are placed onto him. And he has this robe of perfect, clean, pure righteousness. And if you trust in him, the second half of that transaction is that he places it on you. And when God looks at you, he sees that you are clean, honorable, righteous, holy. No more anger towards you. And look at this. It it doesn't say, notice it does not say so that in him we might become righteous. could say that. It says, in him we might become the righteousness of God. When the devil comes like he did with Job, remember this? Oh, Job is only, only loves you, Lord, because you give him good things, and you keep good things in his life, and you put a hedge of protection around him. When the devil comes and says, that man or that woman, look at their thoughts. They don't really love you. They say they love you, but look at what they've done. God doesn't just see righteousness in you. When he looks at you, he sees his very own righteousness looking back at him. For him to condemn you, if you are a believer, he would have to condemn himself. That's how pure you are in his sight. No longer shameful, but honored. No longer estranged, but close. No longer fearful, but confident. Think about this if you're a believer. This means that every eternal blessing that you will ever enjoy was purchased at the cross or made possible because of the cross. You were chosen before the foundation of the world on the basis of what Christ would do on the cross. You stand holy and blameless and will one day stand before God with great joy, Jude says, because of what happened on the cross. You are adopted as God's son or daughter because of what happened on the cross. You are redeemed and rescued and brought back from slavery to sin because of what happened on the cross. You are forgiven and cleansed and seen as clean in God's sight because of what happened on the cross not just for the sins you've committed so far, but even the future sins that you haven't committed yet. God's love has been poured out, lavished upon you like a waterfall, over and over, day after day, because of what happened on the cross. You have an inheritance kept in heaven for you that can never be taken away, never spoiled, never fades away because of what happened on the cross. You've been given the spirit to lead you, to guide you, to strengthen you, To bear his fruit in you, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control because of the cross. Direct access to God. No one can come to a king and wake him up at three in the morning and ask for a cup of water. Unless you're his son or daughter. And you now as a believer are God's child and can call him father and come to him with direct access. No priest, no one in between, you and him because Jesus has purchased your access to him. You have boldness and confidence before God that he will not withhold anything that you need. You have assurance that God will save you. It's not a wish that we might get into heaven. It's certainty that we will be with him forever on the new earth, Eden restored better than we could ever imagine. No more famine, no more war, no more need at all. You've been given a hope for eternity that you won't be forsaken, brought into God's family, given spiritual riches, given a new heart that can love God, freed from the power of sin, reconciled to God, transferred to the kingdom of God's son. Confident that no one can ever snatch you out of his hand. And and finally, you you have the ultimate assurance that God is who he says he is. He said in Exodus when he reveals himself to Moses, he says, I am gracious and merciful slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, yet I'm a God who will by no means clear the guilty. Loving and just. And on the cross, you have the ultimate display of those two meeting and perfectly harmonizing so that now God can be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. Romans 3 says. These are the truths that fuel our life. These are the truths that fuel us to have genuine joy when our circumstances give us no reason to have joy. These are the truths that fuel our evangelization of our neighbors and our friends and our coworkers when we are scared to share the gospel. This is what fuels world missions to the worst places, the most dangerous places, because they need to know this savior. These truths are what fuel us to keep serving our husband or our wife day after day. They fuel us to worship Christ when the world is crumbling around us. Last thing to notice in this verse, do you see that it's in him, that in him we might become the righteousness of God? There is no other way. Jesus is not one God among many. Not all paths lead to God. It won't work out for everyone in the end. Not everyone who tried to be a good person will be saved. There is one way to the Father. There is one way to have that perfect righteousness counted towards you. There is one way to have your sins forgiven, and that is through Jesus only. He is the door, he says, the method of entry into God's presence. He is the way, the truth, the life. He alone is God, and there is no other way. There is no other Savior. There is no other hero. There is no other Lord. There is no other hope that we have. So let's walk through the verse. We took two weeks on it, so hopefully we understand it better. For our sake, in our place, as our substitute, someone stood where we should have been. He, God the Father, the one who has all of the perfect attributes, love, mercy, justice, patience, kindness, goodness, every good thing you've ever imagined on this earth came from his mind. He thought of it all, he spoke it into existence. All plants, all animals, all life, all joy, all laughter, it all came from his mind, and he pursues the unworthy. He made him, Jesus is that him, God, God so that he could bear the wrath of God on the cross for us, man so that he could live a fully perfect life and have it counted towards us as men and women, Savior, the one who rescues us, and Lord He made him to be sin, made him to be sin. He stood in our place and absorbed all of the wrath and the fury that was right and good for God to have toward us. Jesus absorbed it, and and here's the other half. He knew no sin, so that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. And now if you trust in him, perfectly clothed, peace with the Father, righteousness, holiness, joy forever, eternal security, knowing that you will be with him on the new earth when he comes to rescue those who are eagerly waiting for him. And so this is the last thing I want us to to notice. It is sin not to respond to this. It is sin not to respond to this. The demons and Satan know everything I just said and they know that it's true, but they hate it they reject it. They remain unmoved towards it. Their heart recoils from it. And I pray that God would absolutely abolish the idea that salvation comes by checking facts about the gospel, making a mental assent to facts, or that it, you just pray some prayer. Yeah, I did that. I prayed that. I got saved. I'm good. Yes, we are justified instantaneously, but the Bible says that the proof that we know God it's not something that happened in the past, but it is our entire walk with him and our walk with him now that we are still pursuing him, that we still want him, that we still love him, that we still know him. If God has not done a work in your heart so that you treasure Christ, you value him, you see his beauty, you see his magnificence, you see his glory and his splendor, you need to test yourself to see if you are in the faith. Now, I'm not saying that we all... I'm I'm not saying you have to have an emotional experience to be a Christian, or that you need to cry, or that you need to... I'm not saying that. The fruit of the Spirit is self-control. God is a God of order, and yet... We are living, you may not realize this, but we are living in a time of a resurgence of some of these great truths about the gospel. Through YouTube, through the internet, the gospel is is going forth in the world in a way that it hasn't for a very long time. We are living in a very exciting time, and yet we know from church history, whenever that is happening, whenever God is doing a special work to get his truth out, Satan is at work as well, trying to destroy that. And he's going to do the same thing he's always done. If you, are, if you are more led by your heart than your head, he's going to try to drown out the truth with emotional frenzy. If you are more led by your head than your heart, he's going to try to make the gospel into just checking facts and agreeing with, oh yeah, I, I believe these, these facts are true. And what we have to remember, the call of the gospel is not to acknowledge facts about Jesus. It is to worship and bow down before a person. The facts are necessary. If we don't have facts, we have nothing. He really, he really lived, he really was God, he really was man, he really was crucified, he really raised from the dead to show that he, def- he has power over death. Those must be true, the facts must be true, and yet, at the same time, the call of the gospel is more than giving mental assent to those facts. It is treasuring and valuing the person of Christ, knowing what he did and then responding rightly to him so that you you worship and value him and trust in him alone for salvation and you savor him above sex and money and power and influence, whatever else your heart is drawn toward. All good things, but less in value than him. And I'm not talking about a warm feeling or a general feeling of goodwill towards your idea of God. I'm Talking about a love and a trust that makes you say, I I think this, but God says this, and I trust him, and I'm I'm going to do what he says. The way that, that Jesus said it is, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. The way that John said it in 1 John is, and by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments goes on to talk about his commands not being burdensome. If you say that you trust in Christ, but you have never had the experience of saying, I I love him, I see his value and his worth, and it actually makes a practical impact into how I live. I want to go one way, but I value what he says and who he is. And if that is not true of you, you need to examine your heart because you may have never known him. And if you've never known him, you need to hear his words. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? You cannot hold on to this life. You might gain wealth, joy, happiness, peace. You might have all the stuff the world says you need. You might have honor. Your great-grandchildren will not remember your name. And yet Jesus says, whoever would come to me, I will never cast out. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. If you trust in him, all of that perfect righteousness of him can be counted towards you. All of your sin, completely forgiven. All of eternity with him. He says, fullness of joy is in his presence forevermore. The highest measure for the greatest amount of time with him forever. And he says to you, if you will trust in me and follow me and acknowledge that I am the king of the universe and the king of your life, you, you will have me. You will have joy. You will have peace. You will have righteousness. You will be secure forever. So if you're an unbeliever, believe That's what I'm begging you to do today. And if you're a believer, remind yourself of these truths throughout the week. When you get down, when you get, when when all sorts of things come up in life, these are the truths that we need to be constantly reminding ourselves. Praise God for the gospel, amen? Okay, let's pray. Lord, we... We praise and worship and exalt you for being the kind of God that ran after us when we were running away from you and that still today is pursuing those running away from you. We pray that some in here who don't know you would would put their trust and their faith in you. We pray that um, even some who've maybe been coming to Grace Church week after week after week and resisting your spirit, that your word that you say is a hammer, that it would crush their resistance towards you and that they would submit their hearts, and their lives. They would trust in you. Lord, we pray for the believers here. Encourage them. Strengthen them. Let these truths sustain them through whatever comes. Give us joy and peace today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.